Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. On this day, when we honor the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., I want to introduce you to one of the ordinary men and women whose extraordinary actions all across the South brought the United States closer to its founding principles. Her name is Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, and she was 15 years old when she integrated Central High School in 1957 as part of the Little Rock Nine. I sat down with Minnie Jean on January 6th during an historic gathering of civil rights veterans and next generation leaders at the Annenberg Retreat at Sunnylands in Rancho Mirage, California. Hear why she got involved in the movement and how her historic actions impacted her life right now. Minnie Jean Brown, tell folks who are listening who you are. Mm. Well, I can in short time. I'm one of the Little Rock Nine, and the Little Rock Nine are a group of young people who desegregated Central High School in 1957, so it's almost in the Middle Ages. Happened a long time ago. We were 14 and 15, sort of at the beginning, and then the people who were in the 11th grade turned 16 by the end of the year. My birthday is September 11th, so yeah, so we're, the youngest were 14 and the oldest were 16. You were 15 years old doing something that even from you know, my perspective, having read and watched and seen the pictures, it's a scary, scary thing. Was it as frightening in real life, in walking up those steps and going through those doors as it looked? It was more frightening than can be imagined. And part of the reason, I think, um, is we'd never seen mob violence. We'd never been hated individually or as a little group. And it was, it was bewildering, because when I, when I see the pictures of the first day when we were turned away, we all just look really confused. Um, so hatred comes at us in a way that was so scary because people were shouting, kill them, lynch them, mean, horrible things. So it was, it was more frightening than anybody can ever imagine. And so I'm grateful that still photos couldn't show how we were shaking in our boots. Did you see familiar faces among the people who were shouting and yelling and screaming? No, because the, the idea was to make sure we didn't see them. So basically they were behind us. And uh, the governor had placed the Arkansas National Guard around the school uh, to stop our entrance. So I didn't really want to see these people. Um, so I would, it's like a, some kind of monsters coming at you. You don't really want to see it. Mm-hmm. What were some, what were some of the, the other things they yelled at you? I think you just said that they- Oh, well, go home and integration is a sin and abomination against God. So 
I say that um, when we see protest signs by a particular group, I say they never got any new signs. They just went into their basements and brought out the ones from Little Rock because they say the same things. The buzzword was integration is communism. Uh, so we see that. Uh, we saw all the anti everything signs, they're the same sort of uh, belief system or some kind of weird idea of what's evil and what's wrong. And integration apparently was one of those things. Did your parents talk to you um, either the night before or when you got home about to prepare you for what was going to happen or to talk, talk you through what happened? Did they even, did they try to discourage you? Well, I mean, first of all, I think uh, we're really brainwashed in the United States about it being democracy and freedom. And even in a Jim Crow South, uh, we're still pledging allegiance and saying anthems. And there's no preparation for hatred that's going to come, that could come at us. And so... Um, it was something brand new, so we couldn't have anticipated what it was going to be like, nor could our parents. So, I mean, I, I, think, the, I think the newness of it made it um, impossible to prepare for, or to even, I'm still trying to work it out. I still can't figure out how... how unbelievable it was. I can't believe hatred. I, I'm, I've been working on it for, you know, 61 years. So it, there is no logical conclusion to people's behavior in that way. You know, when we hear the age 15, or 14, or 16, we think of, oh, these innocent children, they have these visions of the world that are so pure, um, maybe naive, and then something happens that just strips all of that away from them. Were you... That's true. So is that what happened to you on, on that day? Or yes. Everything stripped. Belief in the mythology of the country, belief in any kind of... It's a, yeah, it's stripped. And I think we each talk about what that, that stripping was about. I mean, your heart, our hearts were broken. And uh, I love the word stripped. Stripped of illusions. Um, stripped of innocence. Because, you know, 15, 14 and 15, 1957 was really innocent. Um, you couldn't even wear pants publicly. So um, it was an interesting time, and we were stripped of, I would say, most belief systems. I certainly was, because they were using the Bible to justify integration, and the preachers were joining in about it being abomination against God. And so all the sort of safe things that you get in your life about what the world is about. It just goes away. 
you said something among many things, many interesting things this weekend, but right out the gate, you said something uh, that I, I wrote down. Thank you. And it was a, a, a message to, we were talking about the young people who we were about to meet. And you said something, I'm paraphrasing. Young people need to be reminded that not everyone was a hero. We were simple people um, who were thrust into this space, something like that. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Well, you walk into the space um, because you choose. And the, the thought, yeah, so everybody say, you were so courageous. Well, I wasn't courageous when I signed that sheet to go to Central. My two friends and I, we said, oh, we can walk, and it's simple, and we're just going to sign up, and why not? So I kind of say, I signed up because it was there. So I, I want, what I'm trying to say is that you get tired of situations and you think you can do something about it. I, I really thought that going to Central was going to be a thing where they would be as excited for me to come there as I would to go to that school. And that would be this, this um, sharing of what teenage life is like. And I had no idea. So, we, so the answer to that is then and now, we didn't prepare our children for racism, didn't explain institutional racism or what racism or hatred, I mean, maybe it wasn't even racism, just plain hate. How it works, and, and it works to precisely what, what happened out there, a lot of women, what happened with all that hate? It was, it was intended to destroy us. It was intended to discourage us. It was to tell us that we were worthless. And really, what it did was the absolute opposite. Uh, we didn't have to go back on this try, the second try when we were turned away. We didn't have to go back on the third try. But we, ch we chose. So there's where the courage kicks in later. There's no courage at the beginning, in my opinion. The courage is, ends up being defiance rather than courage. I'm coming back. Y'all can act all the fool you want. I will be back. And so the two lessons I think I learned on that first day with all that was I'll never be a hater for any reason. You can't, I don't think you can make me hate. So in terms of nonviolence, which I keep harping on, that was my training right there. The, the violence trained me to be nonviolent. And that, maybe that's how we have to think about it. We live in a violent society, so what else are we supposed to do? What kind of value can we have if we live in a deeply violent world? There's only one, one place to be. Talk more about the nonviolence, because as you said, you have been coming back to young people who are questioning 
the value of non nonviolence, and you just you hit the nail on the head. The violence at Central High School taught you to be nonviolent. Well, what is our touchstone? I mean, so a lot of people, it's religion. Maybe, maybe that does it for some people. But what is your, how do you know who you are in this sort of, you know, we're destroying the earth, I'm a crazy, I'm a tree hugger, I'm convicted environmentalist. What is our touchstone if it's not nonviolence? And it just, it just includes everything. It includes relationships with people, relationships with the earth. It, it just includes everything. So why not? What is, what is, one of the things that happened at Central is that we learned later, um, Jim Lawson, who's the nonviolence person who turned Dr. King on. We were at the uh, Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, and he asked, when do you think I came to teach you nonviolence? And we all said, oh, well, you must have come in October. He said, I was looking at it, and I came in February. And by the time I got there, you had already developed the skills that I was going to teach you. Mm. So how do you survive? What do you find as a value for what you're going to do with your life, what, you, what you're going to think? I have six kids. What am I going to teach them uh, about how to live in a complex society? So that's my touchstone. But, that, but the violence taught me that. And I mean, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I hope it can teach us, continue to teach us. Because what else? I mean, mass shootings. What, what, what hope lies in for us? For me, anyway. And I keep going back to that. So when I'm talking to young people, I say, you know, you need some training in this because you don't understand it. And if you could understand it, when you're being hated so brutally, you got to have something inside that says, whoever you are, that's not me. And that, that kind of, they hated me at Central High School beyond any imaginings. What did they do? Oh, kick you downstairs, throw garbage, spit, drop acid, not that kind, off the third floor and make holes in your clothes. Um, Melba Patillo got acid in her eyes and the 101st washed her eyes out. Name calling, the, the just constant. Um, so, I mean, it, it was designed to break our spirits, and in some ways it did, but we didn't show it, you know, kind of. I kept thinking, the most important thing for me to do while I'm here is not to cry. And so now, I'll cry at the drop of a hat. I cried last night because there, there's that time when I couldn't cry that I, that I affirm now. 
Um, so the idea is to make us feel unworthy. But then that's what we do in this country. We, we designate young, we designate black people as intellectually inferior, morally inferior. We did it then, we're doing it now. Uh, we, we, we saw it happen in the coverage of Ferguson compared to the coverage of uh, Parkland. So it's still happening. Uh, so the whole idea is that stuff works and it worked for them because that's what they learned. And it works in a negative way for us because that's what we've learned. So what a person did a study of white women later about why they hated me so much. And they said they hated me because I walked the halls of Central like I belonged there. So that, the, the flying in the face of how do you manage a difficult situation? Well, I didn't think I belonged there, but I sure as hell acted like I did. And so sometimes when we, we talk about our survival, it's about pretending. Uh, it was about um, appearing to be stronger than we really were. And, and we also did that with our families. We didn't tell them anything. But I mean, it was a, a, an interesting time. And I'm, you know, I think about it a lot as an older person and uh, trying to write a memoir and trying to talk about it. And so much of it doesn't make sense. So I struggle with that. I, well, I do want to ask you about tears. Okay. It's interesting that you said that during that time, you, it was all about not crying, not letting them see you cry. And yet now you are free to let the tears flow. And last night, Stefan Ferguson, who, does he work for the King Foundation? No, I think he's, he's independent. He, okay. but he, yeah. So he, um, he sounds like Dr. King. Yeah. Or what I imagine Dr. King sounds like, because I've, I've only heard recordings. Well, You've that's heard how of, we've all heard it, too, is recording. But he also kind of looks like he him. He does. So you have this man sitting and standing there, reading excerpts from Letter from Birmingham Jail. I'm riveted looking at him, but when it was over, I turned around and you were there wiping, constantly wiping tears from your eyes. I have this wonderful picture of you um, doing that. Why? Talk, yes. Because he could have written that yesterday. That was the part I kept thinking, this isn't from way back in the day, this is from yesterday. And there was the, the sadness that it was about yesterday. And that the idea that people are still waiting. And I mean, so much about, um, so last night I kept thinking, you know, what do I want to tell the young people? I, I just want to say, which is weird and corny, we do love you because Somebody's got to love you because this stuff, 
requires love from outside. And one of the things that happened for the Little Rock Nine was letters from around the world. And I'm not sure, I mean, it sounds trivial, but people were saying, we love you, we thank you, I mean, we admire you. I mean, whole classrooms, you know, third grade kids. From, I have an envelope from a letter from India that said, Minnie Jean USA. And I love waving that in front of my kids, saying, eat your heart out, major singing stars, unnamed ones. This is about something, you know? And so we need love from outside. We need, people need to support them in ways, even if it's a letter. I mean, letter writing, emails, Facebook pictures, something. Because um, it is sometimes that support that keeps, you got to get up the next morning and you go, oh my God, I got to go there again. But these third grade kids are counting on me. Um, get up, go, because this is important. And this is not kids of color or this is all kids. And to see, you know, people in around the world were sitting watching that on television. First time black kids had ever been on TV except for the Little Rascals. So the importance of it is beyond any comprehension that somebody your age might have. Because TV and all that is just ordinary. But the shock, the, I, I equate it maybe, I'm trying to, no, it just shifted everything. So I can go to Cape Town, South Africa, and those kids know that story, and they use that story to teach them about apartheid, right? I can go to Belfast, and they use that story to teach their kids. There was a mural, or it's, I think it's been painted over. That's three stories in Belfast. It has a picture of Elizabeth Edford. Here, is kind of thrown aside. And, I, and we say, and some of us say, they don't want young people to know what their potential is, what they're capable of. So it's kind of fun to be that person who's not that person, but to see that person and have a great deal of admiration for that absolutely beautiful girl who just, I could see why they would hate me. I was a beacon. We were, we were beautiful and, and given somehow a cast that would, you know, if you had a halo around you, to them, that was how much they hated us, that they thought we were some kind of supernatural beings. And in a way, I think we were. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
To your point about letter from Birmingham jail could have been written yesterday. Are you saddened, disappointed, not surprised one bit that the, the issues you confronted as a 15-year-old are still the same issues that 15-year-olds today, 30-year-olds today, um, African-Americans today are still grappling with? Well, I'm, the pro the, I'm the progress angry, that you actually. For? I mean, that's what happens. You're just like, what? But the other part is, for me, is that it keeps me vibrant and keeps me um, uh, excited and, and seeking information and learning because of the, those situations have done that for me. They've kept me seeking for answers, um, searching for solutions, thinking about possibilities. So I'm thinking that's, um, if we're going to think what are some benefits, that would be one for me. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I think um, one of the, I was once, well, I was a social worker, so I was always doing therapeutic things so that I, for my people I worked with, and one of the things was to, uh, an exercise to go to your most basic emotion. So uh, all along, I thought my basic emotion about Central High School was probably anger. But when I got to it, it was sorrow. And so uh, one of the things I talk to young people about is sometimes you think you're mad, but you're not. You're sad. And, and how your response to sadness is different from a response to anger. And so to constantly try to hone that response to be um, thoughtful and thorough and, not, you know, learn stuff so that I don't just shoot off, right? So those are the kinds of things when I, when I what, if I could tell young people what I would like for them to do is a good, thorough training in nonviolence because it opens up a lot of possibilities for us to look at ourselves and um, has benefit. Um, there's been a lot of talk about using the phrase, passing the torch, passing the baton. And some people are like, yeah, we should pass the baton. And others, I would have passed the baton. We took the baton. Uh, or they already have the baton. Where, what do, you th what do you make of that? Are you about passing the baton? Well, so what I came, uh, you know, I, there was supposed to be a discussion. I came to the conclusion that I, I would say they were just like we are. They're just doing what they have to do. And, and they're doing it and they're making all the mistakes and they're doing it right and they're getting all the criticism and uh, they're being told that they don't have the right structure. And so it's a rerun. So all I could say to them is, it's complicated. Just keep, do what you think you can. It's complicated. Um, I propose 
that you get training in nonviolence. I'm not asking you to be nonviolent. That's all I. So my daughter was in doing Black Lives Matter stuff in New York City, and they had a really comprehensive training. You can't do this stuff without some help, right? You've got to, you can jump up and go out there every morning, and you're running into a super militarized uh, opposition, the police, and you got to, you can't be going in their faces, you know, I mean, you can get killed. Be careful. It's about learning nonviolence. It's about taking care of yourself and the other people you're working with. So, I mean, it's so complex and it's so broad. Um, I mean, it's a good thing to, to uh, play around with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrew Young has been very consistent and persistent in hammering at two themes. One is, we didn't know what we were doing. Thank you. Well, I mean, yeah, we're trying to confess to that, right? We're trying to demystify the hero thing. You know, he, they talk about Dr. King being a leader, and my thing is, I know all these guys were, they were a bunch of, if they were anything, they would be a bunch of rowdy young people, right? Doing what they were doing. When we first met Dr. King, please don't put this in the thing. What did we think? We thought he was cute, okay? <laughs> Wait, we can't use that? That's fantastic. No, you can. Okay. You can use it. I mean, come on. I mean, he was young. He was a preacher. We from the South. All this we thought it was cute, and, and that's okay. The second thing Andrew Young said was, it was all accidental. Things just sort of happened, and they went our way. Sometimes it didn't go our way other times, but any time, you know, accidental, how the March on Washington happened, accidental, how, how Selma happened. How they fall together. How they, how they fall together. I mean, the... The time had come that enough was enough, and I think that was the lynching of Emmett Till. I think that was, we were, he was one month older than I was. And so deep in our hearts, mine, I thought, this is crazy stuff. And I am just as unsafe as he was, because I live in Arkansas, which is right next to Mississippi. And so it was about time had come to try to stop some of this stuff. But, I mean, it's kind of like touchy-feely doing an affirmation over and over and over, how it just materializes at a certain point. And we weren't, enough was enough. And so obviously it would materialize because it was everywhere. It was, segregation was everywhere. And meanness was everywhere. And violence was everywhere. So wherever you moved, you could touch anywhere, you would be touching it. And so accidental, yes, 
but because it was so pervasive, no matter what you did, you were in opposition to it. And so many, the, um, in my group, somebody was saying, someone, I said, well, maybe you're just too old to be doing this, you know? Because it was kids. It, time, it just said, I don't know what's going to happen, but enough of this. And so then it becomes, touch this, this segregation, this lunch counter, that bus station. I mean, nobody, that train car, get on the bus, put your money, get off, go to the back. Rosa Parks wasn't accidental, but in a way it was because it was there. And that's the whole thing. Everything you touched was segregation. Everything you encountered was Jim Crow. So anything you did, I mean, we all defied. We all got on the bus, got sat in the front seat, got kicked off. That was kind of the play that young, you know, we did. Uh, we all drank out of the white water fountains and the little defiance. So wherever you went, it was there. There was something that was a barrier, something that said, you can't do this, something that said, uh, so I got, used to buy Seventeen magazine. There was nothing, nothing in there about me. And I was mad. So you're like, what? I'm not going to buy another one. So I mean, we're not stupid. So we're talking to young people, let's do the boycott again. Think about what you're buying. Is it violent? What are you, does it make sense? Is it making somebody else rich and diminishing your own community? Uh, so accidental, but so when they, I ended up at Central dropping a tray with chili and all that and got suspended for that. But when I went down to the girl's vice principal, she said, Minnie Jean, did you do that on purpose? I said, accidentally on purpose. So this is a good description. Of course, then that makes me the monster gang girl, gonna kill somebody, obviously unfit. But yeah, I mean, that resistance is accidentally on purpose. <laughs> two, more, two more questions. Um, April 4th, 1968. The, the, the same despondency that I felt on the first day at Central, I said, the country does not deserve me. I am too important to be there. Um, peacemakers are not valued. I mean, my heart was broken again. And it's kind of like Emmett Till, oh my God, are we gonna just keep doing this? I mean, kind of like today, are we gonna keep killing kids and are we gonna still, be blowing away concerts. Um, 
So, uh, because it, right in there, it was a serious error. I mean, I mean, violence. I mean, we think it's bad now, but president, just. But we had already been desensitized by the the kinds of which is what we're what's wrong what's happening now. There was so much and important people. We had already been shocked to the point of you know a president getting killed. It kept getting worse. So you become desensitized. But that was uh, the whole thing of. Um, You, you know, America, you just cannot stand good pe people. You just can't tolerate it, will not be tolerated. So, I mean, you don't get it. It's a life sentence. That's my thing. All this activism is a life sentence. You do not get it. I'm looking at these people, these older people. They've been doing this their whole lives, very quietly. You don't get away. It ain't over. And it's kind of cool. I mean, I, I, I'm excited. Um, I would like to change things, totally. But if I can't change them, I like the effort to try to change them. There's something very um, exciting about that. And I've, I've been in things that we've had victories and things that have had horrible defeats. Um, but, in, but I've learned lots in the, in, in the process. I keep telling my kids, damn, I wish I could download this brain onto a disc. Because it's got a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Um, <laughs> Let me close with this, okay. this question. Yeah, good questions, good questions. What do you admire most about the next generation? I mean, the, the, the same thing I think I, I admired, you, you end up admiring about. Um, the, way, the way I think about it is, I do a lot of things with young people, and I say it's, I, it's an exchange of wisdom and energy. So they got the energy and they can go out and do things. I've got the wisdom and we can combine those two things into, into something really important. So, I mean, I kind of like, um, I think it's cool to be naive and think you can change the world because that's the only way you can. And, um, and so they're not, well, everybody says they're jaded. But I don't think they know enough to be jaded. You know, that, that's, they're pushing it too early because they haven't had enough trials to be jaded. They can't, it's not fair for them to think that they're jaded now. There's so much more to come to give them reason to be jaded. So it's kind of like that... Um, doing the activism to work against the pessimism and to keep the sort of, I don't know if they're going to go far and say optimism, 
but to keep the po potential alive. Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, one of the Little Rock Nine. Thank you very, very much. All right, thank you. It was fun. Ooh. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from the Post newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington, Washington, Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.